Good Lord, what is happening in there? Aurora Borealis? Uh, Aurora Borealis. At this time of year, at this time of day, in this part of the country, localized entirely within your kitchen. Yes. That's it. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Today we're talking about skiing. Seriously, I had no idea how long skiing has been around. In our movie today, set in early 13th century Norway, it felt like our protagonists were on skis for almost half the film. At first I was worried this was a horrible anachronism, but I quickly found a painting online from the 1860s of two warriors on skis holding a baby, depicting an event straight out of the movie. Or rather, it's quite obvious the movie made a point to recreate the scene from this painting. So skiing goes back to prehistoric times and has had military applications over the years. 7,000-year-old Norwegian carving shows skiers, and skis have been found in ancient Norwegian graves. There's even older evidence from China and Russia of human skiing, but we're focused on Norway here today. Vikings use skis, though I think we should picture more cross-country skiing than downhill, but this movie has both. And it's cool to think how this connects to modern day with how Norway was dominant in the Winter Olympics last month. The Last King opens with some information-heavy text. The throne in Nidaros is held by Birkebeiner and King Håkon Sverreson. The Baglers pose a threat and attack eastern Norway with support from Denmark. Among those fleeing is the king's son and heir to the throne, Håkon Håkonsson, who was born in secrecy by Igna of Vartig. Okay, let's take that one piece at a time. Nidaros is a historic name for modern Trondheim, Norway, and used to be the country's capital before it was moved to Oslo. The Birkebeiners and the Baglers are the two rival factions in Norway at the time. For the movie, the Birkebeiners are the good guys and the Baglers are the bad guys. The Birkebeiners represented the poor and common people. Their name was originally used as an insult by the establishment and is a reference to this group of rebels being so poor that they could only afford to have shoes that were made from birch bark. The Baglers, conversely, were the faction of the clergy and aristocracy. This civil war period in Norway was basically a back and forth between these two factions, each rallying behind a king that they put forward as the rightful heir, though oftentimes their claims were fabricated. The real goal wasn't putting the proper king back in place, but it was all about political control for the winning faction. So the king, Håkon Sverreson, mentioned as ruler when we open here, was the bastard son of the previous king, Sverre Sigurdsson. And most of the movie today focuses on two men protecting the king's infant son, Håkon Håkonsson. It's worth stepping in here to note the peculiarity of surnames in Scandinavia, Basically, there wasn't a family name. Children just had their father's name turned into their surname. But again, it wasn't really a surname at all. Håkon Sverreson is just a way of saying Håkon, son of Sver. The example most people know is that Viking Leif Erikson was son of Erik the Red. Erik the Red was Erik Thorvaldsson, as his father was named Thorvald, and so on. Daughters were treated similarly, but instead of son at the end, it was daughter, I know English speakers are more used to hearing romantic language roots, but here we can see common English roots with son and daughter. The Scandinavian suffix here is spelled D-A-T-T-E-R, daughter. I actually get to see all of this in my own family tree. I'm one-eighth Norwegian. My great-grandfather was named Ole Peterson, and his father was Peter Peterson, who immigrated to the United States in 1880. Once in the States, the names were locked in, and Peterson is now the surname of some of my cousins. 
It gets a little hazy, but tracing the family line back to Norway yields generations of men and women with the son and daughter suffix following their father's name. So, back again to our opening text. The throne in Nidaros, the capital, is held by Birkebeiner, the common people's army, and King Håkon Sverdersen. The Baglers, the party of the clergy and the elites, pose a threat and attack eastern Norway with support from Denmark. Among those slain is the king's son and heir to the throne, Håkon Håkonsson, who was born in secrecy by Igna of Vartig. I didn't mention her. She was the king's mistress. I know we don't have a daughter name for her, basically just the place she's from. All rules have exceptions, right? It's a little confusing here still, but the key word is secrecy. It is not publicly known that the king now has an heir. So while his infant son is on the run with his mother and other peasants, the king is still in control in the capital. Two Birkebeiner warriors are sent to protect the infant and his mother. The words Birkebeiner and warrior are used almost synonymously in the film. If you are a Birkebeiner, it is implied that you are a warrior. Meanwhile, there is a successful plot against the king. A noble convinces the king's stepmother to poison the king before she returns to her home in Sweden. This is all still mostly in line historically. Håkon Sverdersen died on New Year's Day in 1204, and it was suspected that his stepmother had poisoned him. Though I couldn't find a historical counterpart for the man who convinces her to do it, he seems to be invented for use in the movie, though they have him be the brother of another historical figure in the movie whom we've yet to meet, Inga Bardson. In the vacuum left by the king's death, Inga is seen as the de facto leader, but this is precisely what his brother, Gisli, anticipated. He's able to successfully turn everyone against Inga, blaming the king's sudden death on him. As the king's heir is a secret... Inga will be next in line to the throne. Gisli hopes by throwing the blame on his brother, he can basically take the th- throne for himself. But first he has to ensure the death of the king's infant son, which he is aware of. And that's what most of the movie is. Two Birkebeiner protecting the boy from the Baglers before they can get him safely back to the capital and have him publicly declared heir to the throne. One of these protectors is played by Christopher Hivju, who plays everyone's favorite wilding, Tormund, on Game of Thrones. You know I love to tie in Game of Thrones wherever I can. And indeed, our whole Norwegian culture here, minus the skiing, can be very much seen as the Starks and other northern men from Game of Thrones. Though they also resemble the dwarfs from Lord of the Rings with all their beards and axes. It's an entertaining movie, but it really is just one battle and chase scene after the next, the details of which aren't particularly important for our purposes here. Back in the capital, Gisli prepares to marry the dead king's half-sister and daughter of the previous king as a way to legitimize his claim to the throne. The Birkebeiners are finally able to defeat their Bagler pursuers and rush back to the capital with the baby king. Inga is released and everyone realizes Gisli was the bad guy. Inga agrees to hold on to the throne until the young boy is old enough to rule by himself and the end. The closing text tells us, in 1217, the 13-year-old Håkon Håkonsson took over the throne from Inga Bardsson and held it for 46 years. During his reign, there was peace in Norway. The Last King is from 2016 and is available to stream on Netflix as of this recording. It has a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, though with just 8 reviews, and the audience score is only 43%. I did enjoy it well enough, though. It, it's definitely uneven at times. The woman who poisons Hokan's Ferrison at the beginning just disappears and never comes back. Inga isn't built up near enough as a leader, and, and when the girl who Gisli wants to marry tries to help him, it seems like it just comes out of nowhere. Like, how does she even know who he is? 
So what did he get right? What did he get wrong? Well, Gizli appears to be fictional, like I said, so a lot of his plotting is invented for the movie. After the death of Hokan's Ferrison, the king poison at the beginning of the movie, his nephew, a four-year-old boy, was king for less than a year before he died as well, so the movie just leaves him out. After this, Inga Bardson was named king without too much fuss, because again, Hokan's Ferrison's bastard son was still not known to exist. And, because I always like to connect all the dots from our past shows, Inga was actually descended from a brother of Harold Godwinson, who I mentioned previously was the last Anglo-Saxon king of England, and ousted by William the Conqueror in 1066. And, if you're an A-plus student, you may also remember that the other man who made a play for the English throne in 1066 was Harold Hadrada, the king of Norway. On paper, Hadrada is the five times great-grandfather of the infant Hokan we see in The Last King. But, his grandfather, King Svera, who would have died just two years before this movie begins, was likely lying about being a long-lost son of the previous king. Again, all this was in the midst of a century-long civil war, and claims of parentage were hard to prove and easy to assert. So once the country was aware of the existence of young Hokan, instead of replacing Inga, he was raised in his court and became king when Inga died in 1217. So, yes, as the closing text of the movie says, he took over the throne, but not because Inga was a steward who stepped down. Inga died. And even then, Hokan had challengers for his throne. The Civil War era didn't officially end until 1240 when the last challenger was killed, but yes, Hokan Hokanson was one of the longest reigning monarchs in Norwegian history, ruling over what is considered the golden age of medieval Norway. They controlled parts of Iceland and Greenland by the end of his reign. The two Birkebeiners who saved him as a boy are historically recorded by name and correctly named in the movie. And their heroic protection of the king is commemorated to this day in Norway with skiing and running and cycling races. In the United States even, Wisconsin has one of its own Birkebeiner races, known as the Berkey, that has 10,000 participants a year, racing over 30 miles from Cable to Hayward, Wisconsin. A few other notes here. The girl Kristen, who we see used as a pawn when the fictional Gizli tries to marry her because she was descended from, like, a couple kings before. She did exist and was married off to one of the Bagler candidates for king, but she's really not significant beyond that. We see the northern lights in the film, the Aurora Borealis. I really don't understand exactly how they work, but if you'll allow me to oversimplify, as always, it seems they are caused by the interaction of charged particles released by the sun and solar winds that then get caught up in the Earth's magnetic poles. The iconic green color seems to be a product of which atmospheric gases are being excited and then the latitude from which they are observed. But red, yellow, and blue lights are also common. They happen in the south as well, where instead of Aurora Borealis, they're called Aurora Australis. The people in the movie are seen using fish oil on numerous occasions, both as nourishment and medicine. It's popular as a supplement today for its omega-3 fatty acids, but fish oil has been used for centuries. The Vikings in Norway used specifically cod liver oil. It could be used as fuel for lamps, a salve to rub on sore muscles, or a way to get calories during the cold, dark winters of the north. I should note that even though we're dealing with medieval Norwegians, we're no longer in the Viking Age. Scandinavia had become Christianized and settled down into a spirit more in line with the rest of Europe of the time. And we also get a mention of Ragnarok. The title of the most recent Thor movie wasn't an invention. Like a, a lot of the world in Marvel's Thor, it does intentionally pull from Norse mythology. Ragnarok is basically the Norse end times. In the movie today, it's used with one character basically telling another, we're doomed, welcome to Ragnarok. 
And the last few episodes have all been set roughly in the same time period, so we've already talked about a lot of the elsewheres. But Young Hokin was returned to the capital city of Nidoros in 1206, the same year Genghis Khan became Khan of all Mongols. He became king in 1217, just two years after King John signed the Magna Carta. And all this was around the same time that Hunakel, who we met last week, was a leader among the Maya. And pushing us in a completely new direction for next week, Hokin Hokinson died just a month after Alexander Nevsky, a prince and later saint who we'll meet in a 1938 movie bearing his name as our journey carries us for the first time to Russia. Russia.